0: So I'm Thomas Piketty, I'm the author of Capital in the Twenty First Century, which is a book uh, in history and economics.
1: And Thomas, can you tell us how you became an economist?
0: So first of all, maybe I should say I, I view myself more as a social scientist than as an economist. I think the, the boundaries between economics, history, sociology are not so clear. So my 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 real dream to be an historian more than an economist and you know I'm trying to um, I, I hope I'm making progress in this direction so maybe one day this is what I will I, w- I will be I, I I started working on uh, income inequality and, and the history of, of the distribution of income and wealth because I was genuinely interested in history and I thought this was an interesting uh, way to enter into the history of our of the past century, of the 20th century, the 19th century. W- one of the big questions is how do, did we get to the uh, where we are today in terms of inequality, how was inequality reduced in the 20th century. We had major shock. We had communist revolution, which to some extent were a form of response to what was perceived as very large inequality after the industrial revolution in the 19th century. Now, of course, the communist response uh, was a a big uh, uh, failure in in particular in its uh, Soviet Union uh, uh, incarnation. So today we have this uh, other uh, incarnation of communism with uh, China, which is a very, you know, unexpected form of communism. And I guess wh- one of the big questions I was trying to raise is how did we get there? You know, why was there such an inequality crisis following the industrial revolution? Why were people so unhappy that they came with this this communist revolution response, which did not work so well? And what are the other responses that could work? better in the future. And these are some of the biggest issues of our time. And when I started looking into uh, the data that we had on inequality since the Industrial Revolution, I realized that very little had been done. I I started as an an economist doing what most economists do, which is uh, proving uh, mathematical theorems without collecting much data. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to, Proving mathematical theorems forever without having any historical data to test some of the mechanism and I started to dig and dig into what could be done in this area and I realized that very little had been done partly because economists are not so interested in history and and partly because historians stopped looking at that kind of uh, material because they they thought it was too technical and it should be left to others but in the end nobody was really it was a sort of academic no man's land, you know, too historical, too historical for economists, too economic for historians and so I initially I didn't know it would get me so far, you know, I started uh, uh, to, to collect the French historical data uh, initially people told me the data did not exist there was no historical record and in fact I realized that there was a very rich uh, uh, data uh, sources starting with the creation of the income tax in 1914 and also starting with the creation of property tax and inheritance tax right at the time of the french revolution so that you could go all the way to the early 19th century and put the big shocks of the 20th century, World War One, World War II, into a broader historical perspective. Look at how things were evolving throughout the 19th century up until World War One, and so this, in in the end, this took me uh, 15 years to to collect the data, extend it to many, many more countries, thanks to. Tony Atkinson for Britain, Andrew Leigh for Australia, Facundo Alvarado for Argentina and Spain, Emmanuel Saez for the U.S., Canada, Japan, and you know this became a very broad international project, and uh, and this has been this has been very exciting to work with all these people and try to better understand how, how we got there.
1: So that is a trajectory from from mathematics to history, which is somewhere where that where you wanted to be. And inequality was an unexplored subject. Why else did it feel important to you, the idea of wealth and income? You know, I, I, I can't imagine that you were sitting down there very pragmatically saying, I'm just going to look at what hasn't been studied. What appealed to you about that work apart from its historical aspect?
0: Well, I belong to a generation. I, I was born in 1971, so I, I became an adult in 1989, which was the... the bicentennial of the French Revolution, which was important at Paris at the time. We were commemorating that. But most importantly, of course, this was the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so this was, you know, I was too young to be tempted by communism. You know, I, this was the end. Uh, but I was certainly, to me, this was, you know, I became an adult with this the end, of, the end of communism. I traveled a little bit in 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 uh, in in Russia and Eastern Europe, like many students of my generation uh, in 1990, 1991, and yeah, I you know I wanted to understand how, how we got there. You know why these these communist revolutions happen, and what better answer to uh, the regulation of capitalism and and making. Uh, uh, um, um, capitalism a more equal, uh, you know, uh, place, more equal societies based on, on uh, proper regulation of, of property relation. So it was, I had a very political and historical um, approach to this issue. So I initially studied mathematics mostly for pragmatic reason, which is that in the French educational system, if you're good at math, you should just do math. And, and even though I you know I was much more interested in history literature from the beginning so as soon as I could after I entered the school uh, in France with a, with a base and mass exams you know I, I, I economics was a natural way for me to return to what I wanted to do which was uh, history Of course you know in my in my family there was a lot of interest in politics from both sides I should say you know my, my parents belong very much to the Sort of post nineteen sixty eight generation, well, you know, they were very very left wing. My grandfather was was much more traditional, very right wing. And you know, I I learned a lot from both sides. I I, you know, I think I have a lot of sympathy for for, for both viewpoints. Uh, and 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 there's a lot to learn from 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 both sides. And probably that's also one you know one of the. One of the reasons that I got interested in these issues, just you know, just like everybody, because the history of of inequality, income, and wealth is not just about numbers; it's really about the different social groups, the different kind of life that people have, the people they they, they meet, the people they marry with. You know, money has an impact on this as well. And so, to to me, you know, it's a mixture of this sort of personal, subjective experience with inequality and a sort of a more. Uh, intellectual, political, academic interest in the, the rise and fall of, of communism, the rise and fall of uh, high inequality, uh, capitalism, and and uh, more uh, welfare type of capitalism, and where is this going to go, which got me interested into these issues.
1: And so at the time that your career is starting and taking off, you started by looking looking back at those developments in the 19th century. But of course, when we look at um, um, the the graphs and charts of the of the recent rise of inequality, it, it's 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 starting in the 70s, really starting to become more obvious. 80s, 90s, as we go on. So you didn't start off thinking that you were going to necessarily, you were going to find that this was a very contemporary issue. But of course, it's turned out that way that you have documented what is, you know, the return to very much more unequal patterns um, towards the end of the 20th century and in the early 21st century. Did that surprise you in any way?
0: Oh, I didn't know I was going to find this. I had no idea. And and in fact, I, I should stress that, this rising inequality pattern uh, happened in some countries, but not so much in others. So it's not yeah. as if it's unavoidable. You know, it's not as if uh, you have, you know, just one deterministic evolution and, and there's nothing we can do about it. And in fact, the, the first country I studied in a detailed manner was was France, for which you don't have such a big rise in inequality in recent decades. Then when we studied the United States with my friend and colleague, uh, Emmanuel Saez, was French-born, but was now an American citizen and based in Berkeley, California. Uh, We didn't know at all where we were going to find this. And then we we were looking at the data, you know, in a very, you know, open-minded way. And, And we thought one of the questions is, are we going to find the same decline of inequality in the first half of the 20th century that what I found for France? And then we realized that in recent decades, starting around 1970, 1980. Indeed, there's a return of inequality. And as we were updating the series, the return to inequality became more and more uh, evident and stronger and stronger. You know, in our initial paper, which was published in, in 2000, well, first version was published in 2001 and 2003. We stopped our series in 1998. At this time, it was still it was getting big, but it was not as big as then when we updated the survey up to two thousand and seven, and now we are up to two thousand and fifteen. So you know, ten years later, twenty years later, it becomes even more evident that there is a strong, long run structural increase of inequality in the U.S., but which we don't find, or at least not not nearly as strong in in Europe, uh, uh, or for that matter in Australia. So although you have an increase in inequality in all of these countries—it's a very much smaller magnitude than in the than in the United States. So there are these are patterns which then we try to explain, which we don't claim we can explain perfectly well. But let, let me make very clear that initially our, our, we didn't start working on this because you know we, we we were concerned or we wanted to show that there was something. You know, I was much more. My, I, 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 I my own intellectual trajectory is probably more influenced by my long-run historical findings for France and Europe than, than for the U.S. Fi- findings for the recent decade of increasing inequality. In particular, what strikes me when I look back at the historical pattern is the, first the extreme level of inequality in France and nearly every European society up until World War One. the fact that it's really only after... The shocks due to World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, that the elites in France and other European countries finally accepted the um, fiscal social reforms that eventually led to a structural reduction of inequality. And number two, I'm I'm really struck by the level of uh, hypocrisy. Prior to World War I, you know, in the early 20th century, in particular in French society, because France likes to view itself as a very, you know, egalitarian country. We did the French Revolution, etc., etc. But in fact, this was, there's a lot of hypocrisy behind this, because this was the very last country to create the income tax in 1914. You know, the, this had been created in Germany or Japan. 20, 30 years before, uh, in in Britain, uh, there was an income tax created in the mid-19th century which became progressive in 1908. Even in the United States, it was created in 1913, just one year before France, but at least it was in peacetime. In France, it was created only to finance the war against Germany, not to pay for schools. And then the income tax later would be used for more, you know, pacific purposes. But And one of the reasons for that is that the French elite at the time... Uh, under the Third Republic, you know the French Republican elite was saying, "Okay, we've done the French Revolution, so you know that's enough. Basically, now we are an, uh, a country of equals. We are not like Britain, which is a very aristocratic country and an equal country, and they should have a progressive income tax and inheritance tax. But in France, we don't need that because we are already a country of equals. Everybody can have access to property. You don't have aristocratic privileges anymore. So that's enough. Except that in my data." what I found is that the level of wealth concentration in Paris or France in 1913 was just as extreme as in aristocratic Britain, because at that time, aristocratic landed estates did not really matter anymore. What matters was the concentration of financial wealth, real estate assets, much more modern assets. And, and, and this, uh, uh, you know, the fact that you have a Republic rather than a monarchy does not really make a difference. And, and, I was really struck by this hypocrisy because you can find today the same level of denial of the rising inequality. So so, uh, including, uh, you know, in the United States, of course, but also, you know, in France, sometimes we are able to today to spend uh, three or four times more money for the very elitist schools where more uh, privileged students tend to go to as compared to what we spend for more uh, you know, no, uh, basic university curriculum where the uh, um, uh, lower and middle class students tend to tend to go to. And, and there's a lot of, uh, a, and we call it, you know, Republican elitism. So because it's Republican, you know, everything is acceptable and every inequality is acceptable. So there's a, there's a lot of hypocrisy. So that's easier to see when you look at the Belle Epoque period one century ago because... but. To me, l- looking at this period is, is a big, um, can be an antidote and, a, a, you know, a way to remind us, you know, be careful. Uh, you know, we want to do better in the future. We want in the 21st century to use these historical uh, lessons. So, again, these are facts that, you know, I didn't know. I had no idea when I started looking into the data to find this huge uh, inequality level uh, in France uh, up until World War One. Because at that time, you know, the economists of the time, uh, you know, very serious professor of economics at the time, you know, they were in a complete denial of this. You know, you look at the French literature in the of, you know, well, actually, in the literature, the novelists were aware, in a way, much better of the real social structure. But the economics literature produced by economists was very much denying this, largely for ideological reasons. You know, they were afraid with the possibility of a communist revolution. But you know there are middle ways. You know you don't need to go all the way toward uh, uh, you know eradication of private property. There are ways, as we've seen in, in afterwards, and and we should uh, we should remember these lessons today.
1: And that's one of the very interesting things about your book, Capital in the Twenty First Century, is that in a way it's an antidote to denial. It's an antidote to what, what you've called the fairy stories that people tell about equality or levels of inequality, which is why producing this huge amount of evidence that is both historical and contemporary, you're able to, rather than, you know, saying to people you're wrong, actually produce the evidence that that that, that, that there's a different story about inequality to tell. Um, Capital of the 21st Century was published originally in French in 2013, in English in 2014... It's a long book with a big historical sweep with a lot of fascinating information about those kind of trends and also I'm sure nothing approaching the amount of data that you have looked at but, but you know, it's very strongly tied back to the data that you have found um, and, and the data that's enabled you to, to come to the conclusions that you have. What made you decide that you wanted to present these arguments in a way that was accessible to a general audience, an audience of non-economists and non-specialists?
0: Well, to me, this is the proper way to analyze this data. You know, the in fact, I, I, you know, some people... Try to pretend that the you know the only way to, to do uh, real research in economics is to have very technical articles published in academic journals, and that all these broad audience books you know are just uh, a compromise uh, and, and and are not really uh, scientific. But I think this is wrong. In fact, in fact, I have put much more thinking into writing this book, and I have I have thought more. I have I have put more energy at asking the big difficult questions when I wrote this book. Much more than what I put into writing, uh, you know, technical uh, uh, articles for academic journals, because in, in short articles uh, in academic journals, in fact, you very often you escape from the big questions. You sort of redefine the questions you ask in such a narrow manor, manner so that you can answer them according to the so the usually accepted definition of what it means to answer a question but in, in academic uh, economics publication, but in the end you escape from the big question. At least when you write books, and you know, I think economists should write more books. You have other social scientists, historians, sociologists write more books, and I think it's, uh, it's very important because in, when you write a big book at least you cannot escape from the big questions. You cannot escape from the big questions that people are asking you. So you know, of course, you don't have a complete answer because these big historical questions, you know, what would have happened without World War One, World War II, you know, nobody knows. Nobody will ever have a proper answer to this question. But at least we can try to do our best, you know, put together different kinds of evidence and historical evidence, uh, 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 material coming from political science, sociology, from the literature, because I think novelists, you know, often have a unique powerful way to, to talk about inequality and 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 describe the the consequences of money in the life of people and and that's you know the language of the social sciences will never be as powerful and certainly not as beautiful as the language of the literature but i think it's complementary you know yes. i think it's a mistake to believe, you know, this has nothing to do. You know, I think these are different ways to approach the social reality and and try to make it uh, understandable. And
1: uh, And certainly it's a way of telling a story to a non-economist audience, which is that you, you know, what is remarkable about the book, I think, as well as that clarity that you've achieved about explaining those economic concepts is the way that you use some of those stories. But you say to an audience, look at Jane Austen, everybody knew what it meant to live on 500 pounds a year or a thousand pounds a year and and you know that, that figure being stable over several hundreds of years so that you use those examples that people are familiar with um, to, to to explain and to clarify some of those concepts and and I think um, the, the way people have taken to the book shows that, that that is a strategy that really works so you know literary economists are obviously going to be more effective in telling these stories. Well, um, it's
0: it's more than this. I, I think it's even for economists themselves they will yeah. they will have a clearer mind by by going through this kind of uh, of material ex- because the the idea that there is something like a pure uh, economic science which you can sort of separate from the from the rest of the world and from uh, you know other people and, and the way other people I, it's just wrong and this is what leads economists into sometimes pure nonsense or you know very abstract reasoning which have no connection. With with reality, you know, I think in a way, you know, Jane Austen or Balzac uh, understood uh, capitalism and understood economic mechanism and what is a rate of return and what is an estate and what much better than many, uh, you know, economists uh, solving complicated mathematical models in order to impress uh, other people, but but who in fact don't really understand. What's at stake?
1: Well, and don't and that sense of this is the this is the lived reality of people at different historical epochs is certainly a very effective way to do it. Uh, The reception, I, I mean, the reception of the book in France was obviously interested and I'm sure gratifying, but it was fascinating to watch as the English publication of your book came close. How this started to be, people started talking about it in, in in journals, in magazines, before it was published, and the huge reaction to the book um, once it was published. You know the the interest in it and the impact that it's had on the way people think about these issues. Were you surprised by by how that happened?
0: Well, this was certainly more than what I could possibly reasonably expect. I I tried to write a book that would be of appeal to a broad international audience. And it was very important for me to be able at the same time to to write in French because you know my, my English is not good enough to write uh, uh, clearly in English and I, I really need to write in French if I want to have a little bit of subtlety or precision and at the same time I knew from the beginning that I had a very good translator Arthur Goldhammer who was going to translate my chapters as I was writing them so I was really I was not writing for a French audience I knew from the beginning that although I opportunity to write in my own language. I was writing for an international audience. There will be an English version coming out just a few months after the French version. So I I really tried to write for a broad international audience that would be interested in the subject of inequality. Now, this worked more than I could possibly expect, probably because uh, there are uh, literally millions of people in the world who want to know about these issues and who were you know, sort of waiting for that kind of book, and and who are not happy with the kind of economics books they see, uh, and and who you know are ready to to to, to read the long books if they can uh, understand them, and and I think I hope th- you know I think this one is really readable by by anyone, and and I can. You know, I can tell you, you don't need to be an economist, of course, but you don't need to have a very high university degree. You need to be interested, you need to have time, this is because it's a long book, so it takes time. But it's, I think it's absolutely uh, readable. Uh, readable no, a,
1: as a non-economist, I would confirm that this is the case. <laughs> that it is, I, And I was very interested that you said that it was harder to write than academic things, because, and I can see why, because you've really worked to achieve a level of clarity and simplicity which, you know, anybody who, who writes knows that to write something with that kind of simple and clear takeaway is hard. You can't say it in three sentences, you know, you're saying it in one and it, and it takes a lot of work. You've talked about how... Um, you want to extend the work out to from those countries where you you started, like France, like to a lesser extent, to the, the UK, to the US, where you had access already to, to, to good historical records and how the impact of the book has meant that other countries are making it um, possible to start collecting data across a, a, a broad range of other countries. And... You know, some of the most interesting patterns that you uh, look at are, you know, some of the things that you mentioned in your talk here yesterday, the case of Brazil or South Africa, that have very different sets of circumstances and patterns and, and, and obviously the element of race coming into those things very strongly. You've also talked about this international group of collaborators who are all working on this database. How do you see the next phase of this work unfolding? What does the future hold in terms of continuing to to work in this area?
0: I am spending a lot of time trying to extend our world wealth and income database, which everybody can access to online, to more and more countries, in particular to more emerging countries. And probably the, the most interesting impact of the success of the book was to force a number of governments to open their fiscal uh, archives and financial data more than what they would do before. So, for instance, uh, in Brazil, you know, we didn't have access to the the proper uh, uh, income tax data when I wrote my book. So is why Brazil was not included in the book. And then because of the pressure by, by journalists and other people, you know, asking to the government, you know, why is Brazil not in the book? In the end, you know, they accepted to let us use fiscal data in a limited manner, but at least more than and before. And the same has happened in a number of other countries, including Mexico, including in India, in, in China, in, in South Africa. We never have access in Ivory Coast. Recently, we have access to more uh, uh, data. So we are trying to, to extend uh, the work to to, uh, to countries in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America. So that's, that's, uh, that's keeping me busy. And, and more generally, I'm trying you know, one of the main limitations of my book is really to be too much Western centered. So that's partly for this data reason I just I just referred to. You know, I I did not I could not access all of the data. But I think it's deeper than this. It's also that my, my thinking so far sort of very much started from the experience of of Europe and and, and North America and the impact of the big shocks of the twentieth century, the, the uh, Communist Revolution, World War One, World War II and the huge impact of these dramatic events on inequality. Now, now I want to take a broader uh, uh, perspective uh, on inequality. You know, inequality started uh, uh, much before uh, the twentieth century and the, and the World War, and it will continue afterwards. And so, I think it's important to to relativize, uh, to to put you know, less emphasis on these particular circumstances, and to look at what I call inequality regimes, which are at the same time sort of political regimes and regimes of justification of inequality, because inequality always needs to be justified in one way or another. In every society, you need to tell a story as to why this level of inequality is acceptable or unacceptable. And of course, you have different viewpoints. It's always a big subject of conflict. What's interesting is that you always need to give reason, justification. You know, even the winners of the game People at the top, they cannot just say, okay, I'm rich, you're poor, it's too bad for you. You know, it's always more sophisticated. They will always say something like, okay, you're you're poor, but you know, it's it's in the interest of the poor to have some rich people so that you have innovation and that's gonna benefit the poor. And sometimes, of course, this is sometimes this is uh, not very uh, convincing and but sometimes it is so some it's always in in the middle you know it's this gray area uh, uh, where where it's it's uh, it's partly true, partly self-serving beliefs and you I want to study this system of justification of inequality how they vary over time and how they, they evolve over time and, and across uh, and across countries and so broadening the perspective to to different uh, uh, political uh, culture and history, is I think the way to to, to, to make progress. Each, each country has its own unique and passionate history uh, yeah, with inequality, you know, including in Australia, of course, which is a country which likes to view itself as very uh, egalitarian, a strong tradition. Um, and, and, but it's the same, you know, every everywhere you have to come with your own uh, history of, uh, you know, and stigmatization uh, related to different groups. You know, even in Australia, you could have imagined that the past between, uh, you know, past legacy between convicts and non-convicts mm. could have left huge uh, divide in terms of inequality. It did not, for various reasons, maybe because race was not involved uh, in the same way as in other uh, historical trajectories, uh, uh, like in uh, like in Brazil or South Africa or in, in, Ameri- in North America, where you can see materially you know who is a, a descendant of uh, of a slave or which you cannot do for convict in australia so in the end you know the country has managed to completely go beyond this this uh, sort of violent uh, past and, and between groups we need to put all these national trajectories into a, you know broader perspective if we want to better understand the, the What future. is
1: very interesting about the case of australia is that Race hasn't played out in that way, but the burning issue of inequality that comes up constantly in public debate is the lives of Indigenous people in Australia who are a relatively small proportion of the population but have on all kinds of indices to do with life expectancy, to do with diseases that are not present in other parts of the population. Um, uh, That that is the, the... absolutely shocking form of inequality here which obviously is based on race but yes it's very interesting to look at the look at the particular circumstances of everybody and it's been fascinating to hear you talk about these things i was interesting to hear to listen to people after your talk yesterday not only do people come to hear about what is ostensibly a, a relatively dry economic issue but but people were are inspired and it's very interesting to see that this is information and knowledge that people want now. They, they want to understand this issue, which, which means that there's promise for potential change and discussion of public policy options that, that might, might change things. So thank you very much for talking to us about that.
0: Thank you.